except it sucks. Hello, and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, released in December 2018, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Mike Lee's Peter Lou, Brian De Palma's With Thanks to Credit in Isle of Dogs, or Jenna Elfman in Fear the Walking Dead instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and well, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse isn't actually a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It belongs to another franchise, another studio, but it does kind of warrant inclusion here, because as far as I'm concerned, it actually attempts to do something a bit different, and in its own sort of reality-warping way, to try and actually fit around, though not into, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's what I think about it, though, and joining me to give his thoughts on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is quiz expert David Smith. David, where can people find you? People can find Find me just on Twitter at uh, DVD Smith. I also play video games very badly on Twitch under the same handle. Um, so yeah, come and uh, give me a follow on those. Okay, so before we go any further, David, what happens in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? This Spider-Man film is the first one to tell the story of Miles Morales, a character that was only introduced about nine years ago. Um, tells his story of going to a school in Brooklyn in a universe in which Spider-Man already exists. And while out graffitiing with his uncle Aaron, he runs into Spider-Man having a battle with Kingpin, who is creating a huge sort of particle accelerator type device under the streets of Brooklyn because he wants to open a portal to other dimensions to try and bring his wife and son back from the dead. And while doing this, Spider-Man is trying to stop him because he says it's going to destroy the space-time continuum. And Green Goblin is in there as well, attacks Spider-Man and holds him into the accelerator once it's open. And what this does is this creates a crack into other dimensions and brings other Spider-Men into Miles Morales' universe and at the same time kills the Peter Parker in his timeline. So Miles Morales at this point has just been bitten by a radioactive spider and is showing symptoms of becoming Spider-Man and is looking to Peter Parker to be a mentor. And then he sees Peter Parker get killed by Kingpin. But all of a sudden, there's another Peter Parker on the scene who's about 40 years old and let himself go, as well as other spider people as well. And together, they have to try and stop Kingpin and get back to their original timelines while also showing Miles the ropes, in a way. And it's done in a fantastic narrative style, showing each Spider-Man or Spider-Person's story as they come into this universe. It's an incredible film. Okay, well, if you think that's confusing, just you wait until you hear what's coming up. But, David, how much did you know about the various Spider-Men and Spider-Women that show up in this before you saw it? I knew nothing at all. My experiences with Spider-Man are mostly from the films. I knew I'd seen a little bit of the cartoon before that, so I knew about people like Dr. Octopus and things like that. But my first proper experience 
with Spider-Man was the cinematic film starting with the Tobey Maguire trilogy. I didn't know anything. I kind of learned sort of in passing about the various Spider-Man comics because if anyone listened to my Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. episode, they'll know that I haven't read a Marvel comic in my life. I only have seen films and television shows. So I'd seen stories in the press about how in around about 2011 about how the new Spider-Man was going to be black, about how he was a half black, half Hispanic. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. It's good that they're sort of branching out a bit. But I honestly didn't realize that there were other Spider-Men and Spider-Women beyond this. And it was only after seeing this film that I realized just how varied it was and just how many different iterations there had been over the years. Because I have to confess and say that I didn't see Spider-Verse in the cinema when it came out because I'd been suffering from Spider-Man fatigue, basically. You know, having gone through three Tobey Maguire films, two Andrew Garfield films and a Tom Holland film, I was kind of done with Spider-Man, if I'm honest. I didn't really want to go and see, even though everyone was telling me how good it was. I just thought, it's another Spider-Man film. What's the point? So I only saw this film for the first time two weeks ago, and I was completely and utterly blown away. I think, I haven't quite decided this yet, but I think it has dethroned the original Spider-Man 2 as my favourite Spider-Man film altogether. It is mind-blowingly good. I like the idea of Spider-Man fatigue. I mean, were you bitten by a radioactive Spider-Man film? (laughs) (laughs) But we should just go through who the various other the spider people are in this film. I mean, you've mentioned Miles Morales who, weirdly, is actually referenced in Spider-Man Homecoming. He is, yes. Briefly mentioned by his uncle who is... Now, I've got to point out, I'll put my hand up here and say, when we did the Spider-Man Homecoming episode, I misidentified Prowler as Plunderer. Now, you know, two petty thieves who are mainly purple and have a Robin Hood complex and both starting with a P. How did I get them mixed up? But anyway, (laughs) Prowler just appears, played by Donald Glover, who will come back to as a kind of straightforward character who phones his nephew Miles to say he'll be late which is, yeah. you know, an intriguing setup. But then you've got this film sort of almost trying to work around what's going on in the MCU because we should just briefly say, for anyone who doesn't know, Sony technically own the rights to Spider-Man and they do still make films with Spider-Man related characters in. The MCU version and all the characters in that kind of, it's not a legal thing, but out of a kind of gentleman's agreement thing, they are done differently to how they would be done by Sony. But Sony owns the rights to all these associated characters. And this is basically the attempt at saying, well, the MCU is already talking about alternate universes. Our characters could exist in them. And what if they come together around but separate to what's happening in the whole Infinity Saga? I think that was a genius move. So that's how we get Miles in. There's also Spider-Gwen who is Gwen Stacy, who was Spider-Man's girlfriend at one point. This was one of the very first Spider-Man comics I read. It was one of the annuals when it was really, really young. Basically, she wasn't served very well. You know, even though Marvel quite progressive with women, even as far back as the 60s, she was kind of just eye candy. Then she got thrown up a building by the Green Goblin and died. I remember yeah. being quite startled reading that one when I was a kid. Years later, when the whole... Because this was kind of based on... There was a comic series called Spider-Verse, where it had even more of them teaming up in it. The storyline's more or less completely different, but it's the idea of them all coming together is kind of drawn from that. But while they were planning that, they thought, why don't we give Gwen a fairer crack of the whip? What if she'd survived and she'd somehow acquired spider powers as well? 
and they turned her into a much more assertive character. You know, she plays in the rock band, she plays drums, she's very sardonic in school, whereas in the original comic she was a bit maybe goody two-shoes, a bit of an airhead sometimes. She's much cleverer and much sharper. I think she was partially the inspiration for MJ in the MCU Spider-Man films. I can see that. Having only seen the Spider-Verse version of it, I do think she is my favourite of the Spider-People. Maybe it is because I'm a drummer as well, but she does seem like the coolest. I think she's got the coolest outfit of all of them, the sort of white. I like that. Like you say, Gwen Stacy was another one that, as far as I knew from the comics and from the films, she was another another just kind of damsel in distress. That's why I kind of, I quite like the ending of Amazing Spider-Man 2 where she actually died because they actually went there. They actually committed to something rather than having everybody survive and it all be a happy ending. So yeah, I was really surprised when she turned out to be Spider-Woman and I have to say, I was visiting home a couple of weeks ago and playing with my uh, young cousin and he had all of his Spider-Man figures out and he had Spider-Woman and Spider-Girl and I didn't realise that they were two different characters. Oh, there'd be many, many Spider-Women who apparently there's a sequel to this in the works with all of them in and news has just broken there may be a proper Spider-Woman film with the Jessica Drew character in the MCU, which I'm really looking forward to. Is that the one that's going to be rumoured to be Olivia Wilde at the helm? Yes, who is a great choice for a director if it's her. There were actually plans initially for there to be a romance between Gwen and Miles and they decided partway through that that isn't very Gwen and so they made a slightly older than him to offset that. I think their relationship is great. He clearly is attracted to her and she's a bit older, bit being there, done that he's a boy but I'm a kind of mentor to him. I think that works much better than a romantic subplot would have done. Yeah, and there's you can tell there's definite chemistry with them. At the end of the film, just before she's about to jump back into her own dimension, you can tell there's a kind of will they, won't they at that moment there, but then they just decide to shake hands and be friends. And that's probably for the best for their relationship because I can't, you know, there's long distance relationships and then there's interdimensional relationships, <laughs> which I don't think would have, uh, I don't think that's a successful recipe. <laughs> But I do th- I do like that, and I do like, because again, they've kind of played with it over the years, but the inevitable romance of the female character and the lead is kind of, it's been done to death. So I'm kind of glad that they didn't go that way, and that she's, again, to use a cliche, she's her own woman, and she's her own character. And she's just, she's one of the gang. She's not just seen as the love interest or anything like that. We've also got Peter B. Parker, who is a slightly older, slightly failed version of Peter Parker. is isn't really based on an actual character, more an amalgam of kind of what-if version to Spider-Man and alternate future ones where he's let himself go. It's just a job to him. His relationship with Mary Jane is on the rocks and his experience here kind of revitalises him, which is a nice way to end for him as well. It is, yeah. And I, I kind of, that's another thing that I liked about this is you don't see many superheroes who are past their prime. Normally you see them when they are, they're fighting the bad guys, but you don't see them sort of 10, 15, 20 years down the line where they're kind of, they've either retired or they've settled down. I loved that version of Peter Parker mainly because he's played by Jake Johnson, who is one of my favourite comedic actors of the last few years. If any of you have seen the sitcom New Girl, he is absolutely hilarious in that. And I think he puts in a really, really funny performance here. I can't think of that many other superhero films where you see them when they're past their prime. Then we start to get really weird. There's Penny Parker, who's a Japanese-American girl who... She has a psychic link to a radioactive spider that controls a massive robot spider-ish suit. If you're thinking that all sounds a bit anime, it really is. And that's the style they do it in here. Yeah, and it's done really well. It's, it's really well integrated. I mean, this film has such a unique animation style anyway. It's really kind of almost off-putting in a way. It's almost like you're watching a 3D film without the 3D glasses. You know, it's got that kind of sort of slightly off-frame kind of animation. But the way that they integrate the anime 
animation into it, including all the facial expressions and uh, the sort of sound effects and things like that. It's it's all done really well. And again, I didn't realize that that was a Spider-Man. You know, that's if I if you'd shown that to me, there was there's nothing that would have convinced me that that is a, an iteration of Spider-Man. And I think isn't she from something like the 3200s? She's from the far future as well. It's definitely the well, I, was, I was about to say it's the most bizarre, but I think we're about to come on to the one that's the most bizarre. <laughs> Um, but that was really inventive. And again, it's completely different from anything else. Well, just before the really weird one, we've got Spider-Man Noir, voiced by Nicolas Cage, who, of course, yes. Ghost Rider in the terrible Ghost Rider films. But here he's brilliant as this kind of Depression-era iteration of Peter Parker, who, in the comics, actually fought the Nazis before America got involved in the Second World War, which is a lovely bit of satire that, you know, this guy saw them refusing to become involved and thought, I've had enough, I'm going to give Hitler what for myself yeah i do love a good sort of noir story and when we talk about agents of shield season seven we can talk about that as well honestly i thought i thought nicholas cage was brilliant in this i loved how all of his insults were kind of from the 30s and 40s i think at some point he says something like take that you hard-boiled turtle head or something like that they sound like old sort of like radio shows from the 1930s and 40s the old kind of you know superman era kind of thing and i loved the running gags with him being entirely in black and white and not being able to solve the rubik's cube i mean it's really weird because whenever you talk about something with nicholas cage in it you always it, it's kind of kind of a joke you know again we talked about how ghost rider is kind of a bit of a joke and that there's not that many i mean there's a running gag in community about nicholas cage is he good or bad and no one really knows but i thought he was brilliant in this he did really well and then and i just want to hear before i say anything else what you made of this peter porker the spectacular spider ham <laughs> i mean i loved that they did this because i think <laughs> if you are going to embrace all the different kinds of spider men and spider people that there are in the world you have to include the parodies as well because they are just as part of the picture part of the whole culture of these characters as the actual people themselves and so i hadn't heard of this character beforehand but the fact that they thought i mean this is like having like a bill of the greatest ever musicians and having weird al yankovic on there alongside them you know it's putting the parody next to the original and it works and he's animated really well. I don't know if you noticed, but his nostrils in his suit animate at the same time as his eyes. So like when his <laughs> eyes get angry, his nostrils get angry and they blink alongside and everything like that. And it's just these little sort of subtle animation touches that you wouldn't really notice otherwise. And it's John Mulaney as Spider-Ham, which I think is his first ever acting appearance in a film that wasn't one of his own. He's fantastic in this as well. And the fact that they managed to integrate it and it makes sense, completely makes sense. It's really, really well done, because that could have been completely and utterly jarring, but they do so good at it. Well, do you know where Spider-Ham originally came from? No, I can imagine it was probably some kind of commercial or advertisement or something like that. No, this is a really weird story. It was in the 80s. Marvel tried to do an imprint aimed at younger kids called Star Comics, where they made up all these new characters called, there was like Royal Roy, Planet Terry, Top Dog, and they also did tie-ins for things like ALF, Defenders of the Earth, obviously, which one of their cartoons, and Your Mates and Little Clouds of Happy Town. <laughs> oh, God. Well. They had these original characters that, you know, Star Comics didn't last very long. And it was, what do you do with them down the line? And things like Planet Terry later turned up in, I don't think it was in the main Guardians of the Galaxy series, but they did the Drax series. 
And, you know, that's a good place to put him, this ridiculous space-travelling boy. Of course, he makes sense in Drax's universe, but Spider-Ham was kind of... It was a bit too sophisticated for kids of that age, I think. It was more like something you would see in Oink, which is the sort of junior viz that was around in the late 80s, where it was actually, like you say, it was a send-up of Spider-Man, and it didn't just stop there. Every other character from Spider-Man's universe was anthropomorphised in it, so he would sometimes be fighting alongside... Croak and Badger, or the Pun Fisher. Oh, I just got that. Yeah, Oh, yeah. On the Spider Verse Blu-ray, there is a little Spider Ham short there where is. he talks about the different villains that he's faced. Because I think is is it the Crawdaddy or something like that? He's having a heart to heart with after he's just beaten him in a battle and saying you've got to come up with a better pun name, man. Honestly, and then he lists all these different villains that he goes up against. It's such a funny sort of classic cartoon. It's kind of in the sort of Tom and Jerry style, and it. it explains what Spider-Ham was doing when he got sucked into yes. the plot of the Spider-Verse. <laughs> he was eating a hot dog as well, which is a bit disturbing. Yeah. He does you actually don't, comment don't, on that. Yeah. Don't think about that too much. When you get to the end of Spider-Verse, the actual film, because we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's an alternate cut of Spider-Verse on the Blu-ray, which adds in a whole lot more context to the film, makes it about two and a half hours long. And one of the things you see at the end of Spider-Verse is you see Spider-Ham on his own eating a hot dog. And it's just a no, it's, it's just a passing shot in the normal film. But then you, when you get all this backstory about he really wanted that hot dog, it just adds all this colour to it. Well, obviously, he was the character that had the most potential from Star Comics for going forward. But what on earth do you do with that? Well, they did do. I mean, we've talked before about What If, the kind of alternate history Marvel series. that They've occasionally revived. There is a series of that coming up on Disney+. Plus, But they... At one point in the 90s did what the which is a place to re-explore all the unhinged characters that appeared in things over <laughs> the years. That and there was no way of bringing back. And Spider-Ham reappeared in that. And the reception was so good, they have periodically used him where kind of the storyline permitted it in other places after that. It seems like, I mean, I, I know it's an anthropomorphic sort of, because the storyline behind Spider-Ham, I later found out, was it wasn't a pig that was bitten by a radioactive spider. He was a spider that was bitten by a radioactive pig. Yes! He does seem the most sort of Looney Tunes of the lot. And it does seem kind of like you've got all these human characters and then suddenly this cartoon appears. It's like a reverse space jam. And the best thing is, as we've already alluded to, they're all animated in their own completely different style befitting the character. And that's one of the... It's difficult to say, just talk about it, how mind-blowing this whole film is. The way there are so many animation approaches, so many visual approaches, veers off in different directions. All this. I think... It's signposted from the very beginning where you've got the Columbia logo and the Marvel logo keep glitching, going through different iterations from over the years. And suddenly a Comics Code Authority stamp just whacks onto the screen, obliterating both of them. That is signposting saying it's going to be messing with reality, messing with your head. But also we're not going to leave out any weird bits of ephemeral pop culture involved because I remember seeing that stamp and not understanding what it was. (laughs) Basically comics had to be vetted in America at one point. And funnily enough, I think the only Marvel ones that never got the stamp were in, I think it was in 1970, there were a couple of issues of Spider-Man where one of the kids in the high school took a hallucinogen, I don't think it was actually named, and had kind of a psychotic episode. 
which Stan Lee thought was important to explore that because, you know, hippies were kind of saying Doctor Strange is far out, man. Yeah. And he thought it was important to show the downside of that. The Comics Code Authority would not give them a stamp because of that. But I love that. I mean, even what we see of actual Spider-Man himself, they do say in the commentary that they try to put every spin-off iteration of Spider-Man, good and bad, into that. So there's aspects of the Nicholas Hammond characters, even aspects of Tom Holland in there. There's the allusion to, well, it wasn't real, but they later recorded the disco album the disco christmas album actually i forgot about the spider-man christmas album that's one of my <laughs> favorite moments the terrible spider-man ice cream it celebrates without being ironic every ephemeral aspect of spider-man how they did that and managed to make it entertaining funny and straight-faced i don't know i think one of the things is the writers behind it because the people behind it are um phil lord and chris miller who have been at the helm of the 21 and 22 Jump Street films, the Lego movie. They have some serious comedic expertise behind them. And so they're very good at poking fun of both themselves and of other franchises like that. And yeah, right from the off, when it starts talking about, you see the original Peter Parker, the Chris Pine Peter Parker, talking about all the things that he's done. And they, of course, make reference to the dancing from Spider-Man 3, which I don't think Tobey Maguire and Sam Raimi are ever going to live down. Right away, you're thinking, okay, this film knows what it's doing. It's irreverent. It's self-referential. This is going to be a good time. And the other interesting thing they do is, it comes back to, in the episode we did about Daredevil, I talked about how I never really liked the Kingpin in the comics because I found him a bit too much like a, like a Batman villain, someone who's just bad for the sake of it. It never really worked for me. And obviously in the MCU, they reinvented him as Wilson Fisk primarily rather than as the Kingpin. as this great, cultured, intelligent, complex character who wanted to save New York through the auspices of thinking that if there was one person who controlled all organised crime, they could do it with a sense of responsibility. And I thought Kingpin had been redefined. You know, I was kind of glad to see the back of the comics Kingpin. Here they do the comics Kingpin, and it fits <laughs> brilliantly. It is perfect for that kind of shallow, one-dimensional villain. But he has given some sympathy as well. Because his motivation, like you say, is to bring his family back. It is, yeah. Partly, I think this is helped by me having seen Daredevil and having seen his wife as a character in that and seeing how much they love each other. Because they do, in Daredevil, they paint him as being this sort of loving husband or loving partner. And in this one, he's kind of... He is a little sort of one-dimensional in terms of he is the big bad, but at the same time, he does have this motivation for it. He's not just bad for the sake of bad. He's building this thing, and we should talk about Dr. Octopus as well, because he ropes Dr. Octopus into this scheme as well, but he does have a reason for it, and he is so determined to get his family back that when people are saying, you know, you need to shut down the machine, it's causing dimensional rifts, it's going to tear the city apart, he says, no, I need to get my family back, and during the final battle with Miles, he sees flashes of his family, and he's still desperate for them saying no come back and they're sort of flashing in and out of existence so it does paint him really well i don't think he got as much screen time as he maybe could have he's kind of he only shows up at a few points and it's only for a couple of short scenes at a time until he gets to the actual battle but he starts right away by killing spider-man and how many times is your protagonist killed in the first half hour of the film and i love this design because i assume that in the comics he looks like that where he's sort of this enormous you know 
presence. Pretty much, yeah. I was really impressed with him. I think I still like the Daredevil version of him more. Liev Schreiber does an amazing job voicing him in this film, but I think I do prefer Vincent D'Onofrio in, in the Daredevil versions. I think that's just, again, like you say, the complexity of that character. Well, and also because he heard the episode about Daredevil and liked it and recommended it follow us <laughs> on Twitter. So, you know, yes, yes. He I gets mean, points he's, for that from me. He's going to be number one for that. Shall we talk about the villains in this? They offer a fresh twist on Doctor Octopus that I've never seen before and apparently has never been seen before. No, Olivia Octavius, who's basically a female Otto Octavius. Yeah, that was really surprising because my favourite Spider-Man villain of all time has always been Doctor Octopus and mainly that's because I think Alfred Molina was perfect as him in Spider-Man 2. That was always the one that appealed to me the most because I think it's just the most visually spectacular. You know, people like the Green Goblin and creatures like that and the Green Goblin does show up in this film in a form that I've never seen before because he's kind of a sort of dragon in this which I didn't realise was a form of it. But yeah, I was really impressed with the, the fresh take on Dr. Octopus in this one as well, yeah. The other one was The Prowler, which, uh, again, I hadn't really known until you mentioned that that was Donald Glover's character in Homecoming. I don't know if that, I'm guessing that's in the comics, the fact that um, his Uncle Aaron turns out to be The Prowler, but I did love that added another sort of level to it in terms of Miles' characterization, in terms of his family, of course, his father is a police officer, and his uncle is a sort of, he's a sort of graffiti artist, he's kind of, he's not a criminal, but he's not on the same side of the law as his brother is and then you find out that he's actually one of Kingpin's secret henchmen and it's a really good twist within that film and of course there's a Stan Lee cameo in it which I'm not sure was the last one he actually did but it's got an extra poignancy to it because he plays a costume shop owner and he has a really touching conversation with Miles and obviously it wasn't intended as a tribute but very sadly it became one I think after he died he appeared in Spider-Verse Captain Marvel and then Avengers Endgame and that was it and all three of them kind of have their own kind of poignancy because Endgame obviously it's his final one and it's the closure of the sort of climactic end of the MCU as a whole Captain Marvel he's kind of playing himself because he's reading his own script or he's reading his cameo in Mallrats and then Spider-Verse he's talking about how Spider-Man is a close friend of his and he's sort of saying goodbye to him and it is it's very sort of it's poignant in a way that it wasn't intended to be I'm sure because these things are recorded sort of years in advance so they can animate them but it's kind of just timed and come out that way and it's a nice little sort of goodbye from the um from the Sony Pictures side of the Marvel franchises and there are so many less obvious references as well because one of the extras on the Blu-ray is they do challenge you to see how many you can spot they say they've even forgotten some that they put into it um, <laughs> just everywhere you look there is a reference to something or an appearance by something obscure and my favourite one is it really is a blink and you'll miss it thing there's a clip of Donald Glover as Troy from Community yes. dressed as Spider-Man that works on so many levels because obviously he's in Spider-Man Homecoming at one point he put pressure publicly for there to be it was pre-MCU but for there to be a Miles Morales film he was very sort of instrumental in campaigning for that going to that sort of depth with it is absolutely fantastic I think it is and I think not only was he campaigning for there to be a Miles Morales film but people were campaigning for him to be Miles Morales much like myself I think people were getting Peter Parker fatigue they'd you know we'd seen by the time Miles Morales came out we'd had the Tobey Maguire trilogy and the first Andrew Garfield film was a year from coming out and people were kind of already crying out for a new Spider-Man I did love that reference and it is blinking you'll miss it I think it's when he's training at the punching bag and it's on a television in the background and that is just that's not edited in any way that is a screenshot of Community just put into the animation style because I think Troy and Community is wearing Spider-Man pyjamas again I'm probably not the person to tell you what the references are because I don't know that much from the comics but you know there are little sort of references here and there the thing about Spider-Man fatigue of course is that 
if you think about it, in, since the first Spider-Man film came out, we've had eight different Spider-Man films and three other films that have had Spider-Man in them. So that's 11 films that have had Spider-Man in them in the last 20 years. And in that time, we've only had five James Bond films to give you an idea of how many times we've seen Spider-Man on the big screen. So yeah, that's one of the reasons why I think choosing Miles Morales to be the protagonist of this film was a genius idea. Because I think they started development on this film something like 2014 or 15. So he'd only been a character for three or four years at that point, which is, you know, he's an infant in the Marvel timeline at that point but it's such a unique take on a film that if they'd just done a normal sort of peter parker origin story again people would not have gone and seen it because they've seen that a hundred thousand times at this point and i honestly hope that with the talk that sony's doing about they're going to have their own sort of spider-man cinematic universe where they've got venom and they're going to have other spin-off films in the future and they're all going to be live action and i think they should just focus on this kind of animated style because it is entirely different from what the mcu is doing it is fun it is successful people love it where maybe they didn't love venom as much and i think it just keeps things fresh and yeah it's going to stop me from getting any more spider-man fatigue another thing about this film is we have to mention the soundtrack one of those things that, again because this is the first spider-man film to have miles morales and he's a black protagonist growing up in brooklyn the soundtrack has hip-hop throughout it and it works so well again it's an african-american protagonist and it's a it's his story we've had african music in with black panther before but we haven't had proper hip-hop in the way that so much of sort of modern-day New York culture has brought forward. And it's a superb soundtrack. And this is coming from someone who doesn't really like hip-hop very much. It's not one of my favourite genres, but I thought it worked so well here. The animation lands on the beats of some of the songs. And it's one of the few hip-hop albums I've actually downloaded because I loved the soundtrack so much. I thought it was absolutely superb and it fit perfectly in this film. Well, that's, uh, we should just take a moment to say, I mean, we've talked about how interesting it is, but I don't think we've really got across just how brilliant it's not just a good animated film it is a brilliant film and i can point to i mean i know people who've just put it on who don't care about superhero films who just put it on to entertain their kids and then said to me oh my god i put that thing on for the kids and i just couldn't stop watching it it was brilliant i don't know anyone with a bad word to say about it it's got a 97 percent aggregate score on movie review websites which is higher than most of the MCU, it works on every possible level. And, you know, while sometimes I would recommend some superhero films to people with reservations, I'd just say anyone can like this. Yeah, I I would completely agree with that. I was trying to think earlier because I watched it again. I watched the original and I watched the alternate cut. I couldn't think of a single flaw in it. The only thing I could think of is that you're dealing with so many spider people that it might be a bit overwhelming if you are entirely new to it. But I think it's easy to keep track of. The visuals are stunning. I've never seen an animated film like this in my life. The performances are really good. It's really funny. It's really compelling. And it leaves me itching for more films in this style. We're apparently getting a Spider-Verse sequel and we're getting a Spider-Women spin-off. And if those are all as good as this one is, then I will absolutely be there day one at the cinema to see these. I cannot recommend this film enough. And the more I think about it, the more I do think it is probably my favourite Spider-Man film now. I think it has finally dethroned Spider-Man 2 after, you know, 16 years or whatever it's been. And yeah, it was so well received that Tom Holland, Chris Pratt and Patton Oswalt apparently all on the opening weekend tweeted about how much they loved it. You know, they're from the proper MCU. You know, they weren't on the bound to support this kind of interloper. Tom Holland in particular had nothing riding on saying that the Spider-Man film was good. <laughs> but they all really, really raved about it. And I think it was utterly thoroughly deserved. But the story doesn't end there because as you've alluded to... There's the alternate universe version on the Blu-ray. I'll come back to what I 
thought of it in a minute but what did you make of it i thought it was really good i think the problem is that so the alternate universe version for anyone who doesn't know basically puts in ideas and storyboards that they originally were going to have in the film but they took out for whatever reason either for narrative reasons or for time reasons anything like that this film is about a two and a half hour long supercut it's basically it's the Zack snyder cut of the spider-verse and it's filling in all the blanks so basically it is the entire spider-verse film as you see it with a couple of scenes taken out and storyboards put in to show you alternate takes alternate storylines they add in a couple of characters that weren't in it before like miles morales's roommate in his boarding school becomes a prominent character in that version i enjoyed it i think it adds a little more flesh to the story in terms of you see things like you see kingpin making a speech at spider-man's funeral basically it's it's for the super fans it is it's extra padding just to give you an idea of what they were going for what the filmmakers intentions were but it is two and a half hours long which is long for a superhero film avengers infinity war aside it's a fun watch but i think the fact that spider-verse as a film on its own is so perfect and the beats are so well spaced throughout that i wouldn't say it's essential viewing but it does add if you are looking to see more of the film and you really like the film then i'd say you know it's worth a worth a watch i would say well i really love the way that it veered between you know the finished bits of film and really sketchy animatic and like you say storyboards and half done bits of CGI and so on I found that really even more disorientating than the actual film (laughs) and it reminded me of you won't get much higher praise from me than this it made me think of the Beach Boys album Smile that was never completed oh yeah where there are bits of it are fragmentary that don't really they were supposed to be you know overdubbed and edited together and never were and there's kind of lurches in that that this cut made me think of and when I enjoy something like that I really enjoy it trust me (laughs) (laughs) yeah because it kind of shows you some of the story parts never made it beyond sort of sketches so you will literally you'll have a sketch on the screen accompanied by maybe you know five or ten seconds of dialogue because the thing about these animated films and it's true of most of the animated films is that all the dialogue is recorded before the animation has started they record each of the Toy Story films for about sort of four or five years before they actually release them it's good to see all the different levels because some of them are just storyboards some of them are animated some of them are full sort of computer generated graphics you know it's like suddenly you've gone into sort of the sims in 1999 you know watching these characters run through and then some of them are complete animations that were just deleted for running time and it adds another sort of level of just how many different versions of the animation they go through before you end up with the final product and then as with the actual mcu films we get the post credit scene which i wasn't expecting and i loved it's one of the best in terms of spider-man you cannot have a film with all these spider people in it i'd not mentioned the original television cartoon i mean with all the spider-man memes that have gone on over the years they could not make a film like this and not reference it in some way and it, it does all the things that a post-credit scene should do it leaves you with a laugh it leaves you with a tease it introduces a character that hasn't been in there yet yeah i thought it was superb i don't know if they were deliberately teasing a sequel or if they just put that in as a sort of here's what else was going on but it, it's worth sticking around for which i can't say for all the post credit scenes but yeah it's it's really really funny well apparently going forward they will be using miguel o'hara who's the kind of wrestling inspired spider-man that appears in a fantastic if you say that famous meme of spider-man pointing at himself apparently they say on the commentary i mean you can't really tell but i love this attention to detail it was done with proper cell animation like the 1967 cartoon and they do refer to it as the most expensive silly joke in cinematic history <laughs> but 
they randomly didn't clean cells from it, you know, left them dusty with fingerprints or so on, to make it look like the original cartoon. I love that. And I love really the authenticity. Does, they even compressed the sound to make it sound like something coming out of a TV before we had high def and so on. And yeah. It's just a great way to finish, I think. I love when they do that. I love the attention to detail or something like that, because they didn't have to do that. We've got good enough computers now that they could have just probably, you know, emulated it and no one would have noticed. But that shows the care that they wanted to go to to get it absolutely right. Well done on Oscar Isaac for turning up for those two lines of dialogue or whatever it was <laughs> at the end of the film. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited because again, that's a Spider-Man that I'd never heard of before. I've never read the comics. I didn't know how many there were. You just kind of assume as a casual cinema goer that it's just Peter Parker from the 60s until... 2011 and then suddenly Miles Morales comes along you don't realize just how many there have been and I love that we're now getting films that are showing that to the casual non-comic book reader world well that brings me neatly into the one thing I've got left to ask which is David if you had access to a team of quiz experts from across multiple universes what would you use them for well I'd probably use them to fight crime because that's what you do when you've got multiple dimensions David thank you and Borag Thunk <laughs> thanks very much Tim editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.